Labour has never done well in a UK election without doing really well in Scotland. We need deposit ATMs and we need withdrawal ATMs and we need a law that means that businesses have to accept cash. UK workers have had the most bargaining power essentially since the 1970s because the jobs market is so tight. Can Britain actually afford to maintain a global military presence? listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Lizzie, there's a slight linguistic theme running through the programme today. We've got new metaphors for you and we've got a new acronym as well that's dominating the political conversation today. Say it really quickly. RAC. Okay, say the real thing really quickly. (laughs) Reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete. Very good. That was very... a lot of assonance in there. It was like an awful lot of vowel sounds. A true professional. Tell Indeed. me what it is. This is the story around those 100 schools, more than 100 in fact, that have had to be enclosed due to an emergency because of this kind of concrete rack. It was used in buildings after World War II and is seen as now having a much higher chance of collapse in old age than traditional concrete does. This is, of course, a massive issue as we're looking at school- children going back to schools and around the country, many of these buildings now not being able to be used. This is something the schools minister, Nick Gibb, has been talking about this morning and why this decision has come right before this all-important back-to-school moment. What we learnt over the summer is that the policy that said that where the rack is identified as low risk, uh, you don't need to take remedial measures. What we've learnt in the summer is that is no longer a safe attitude and we are now taking the cautious approach that even where it's not critical, the condition of the rack, we still want those buildings taken out of use. So that was the schools minister, Nick Gibb. It's not quite the back-to-school reset that Rishi Sunak was hoping for. No, I mean, look, it's not the sort of news that any parent wants to hear. Is there going to be any problems of accommodating children as they go back to school, especially if the summer has felt a bit long for anyone uh, with their children off school? But also, it's not a good look for the government going back to work next week when, you know, Parliament resets. This is sure to be a very controversial uh, issue there as well and and yet another problem to add to the list. Well let's stay with the idea of buildings but in the more residential sense because of course we've had house price data from Nationwide this morning. It showed the fastest fall since 2009. Prices were 5.3% lower in August compared to last year and it really is another reminder of the pain that's being inflicted by higher interest rates. So for analysis we're joined now by our economics reporter Lucy White and Niraj Shah from Bloomberg Economics. Welcome to you both. Lucy, what did we learn from these nationwide numbers? So it's another month of annual declines. We've seen the um, the pace of annual declines now steepen to its greatest um, since 2009, July 2009. That's a 5.3% drop in house prices year on year. Month on month, it's 0.8%, much worse than economists were expecting. Um, and it's brought the average property in the UK to a value of 259,000 just over. Um, that's down, you know, about 14,600 pounds from a year ago. Um, it's it's not essentially a good number for 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 the government as they you know look to prepare for a general election mm. next year. Um, you know these are the property owners, uh, households um, with mortgages tend to be the Conservative Party's sort of key votership. Um, so yeah, it's 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 something that perhaps um, might not bode well for it's, Rishi Sunak. It's quite ahead grim reading, year. but it also comes in a week that we've had some other data points too on the housing market. We heard from Zoopla on the programme earlier this week. Just remind us of the sort of the other bits of data we've had out this week that have told us about where we are with the housing market now. Yeah, so Zoopla have said that um, the housing market is 
is on track to see the lowest level of transaction or home sales since 2012, which, um, again, is a, is a pretty bleak figure. I mean, obviously, we've had this huge surge in um, property buying during the pandemic when we had very low interest rates and a huge number of people trying to find larger properties outside of cities. Um, now we're really starting to see that die down as higher interest rates bite and people are having to you know, perhaps think about whether they can afford the type of home that they might want to be moving into. Yeah, so of course it's the Prime Minister's top priority, as we well know, to halve inflation by the end of the year. To do that, the Bank of England's been raising interest rates, but also we know that there's this lag in monetary transmission because you have to wait for people on fixed-term mortgages. Klaxon, klaxon, what's monetary transmission, <laughs> Lizzie Burden? Well, you've got to wait for people to refinance their mortgage for them to experience the new higher interest rate. So I guess I'm wondering whether the pain is going to come actually closer to the election and that's going to be bad news for the Prime Minister. I think that is what we're going to see. You know, um, as you say, we've got a, a higher proportion of people now who are on these fixed term mortgages and you know for anyone who refinanced their their last mortgage, you know, a, a few years ago and was on a five year or a two year um term they may only be really starting to experience the the pain of that now um and you know it's it's there's a limit to how much the government can actually do to address this because of course this is exactly the sort of pain that the bank of england is essentially trying to inflict for want of a better word you know they want to be able to reduce demand so that people are buying less so that we can bring inflation down um so you know i think the government may find their hands tied yeah, on this as well. Lucy, stay with us. I want to bring in Niraj Shah from Bloomberg Economics, uh, who's been listening into this conversation as well. Niraj, how should we be characterising the data that we've had out this week? Obviously, we've been heard warnings from yourself and, and colleagues for a long time about the, the slump that was coming in the housing market. So where are we in it? So I probably characterise this as it, it could be worse. So it's actually bad, but we're not actually likely to see at this stage a repeat of the 90s recession or the financial crisis where house prices fell by about 20 percent and so from last year house prices have fallen by 5.3 percent so far and we're expecting around a 10 percent decline from the peak so we're about halfway through um from here on in um we're actually expecting more of a slow puncture going forward um and you might ask well why aren't you expecting a, a, a larger decline and the key thing is um, unemployment. Unemployment is still expected to, although we're expecting it to rise, um, it's still going to be historically low. So we're expecting it to peak around 5% next year. And that will help prevent forced sales. And also legislation so on restricts banks are not going to repossess your homes if you're struggling with mortgages. It's going to be a last resort. So a few things that are going to be are different from the, the past, basically. So what it actually means for consumers, for voters, is, as you say, not that people lose their houses, but then what? Is it that they're in negative equity? Is it that people are struggling to get on the property ladder? Is it an actual, actually an opportunity for some people to take advantage of lower house prices and bag a property? There are always opportunities in the situation, but I think the bigger picture is a lot more people will be struggling. Um, we're expecting around 4 million households to see a sharp increase in mortgage repayments by by the end of 2026, when all their fixed rates expire. But that really means a big chunk just before the election are going to be really being hit or being shocked into this. And the bigger picture here is if you're spending more on your mortgage payments, you can't spend on the economy. And we're actually expecting a mild recession uh, next year as rates rise. Neeraj, when does this 
bottom out, as it were? When when do we get to the worst bit of this housing slump? I think the headline figures you're going to see, um, actually, in the near term, actually, but I think what I'm getting at is the, the slow puncture. We're not going to see a, a quick recovery. And that's the problem here, because the longer it, the pain lasts, you know, it gets more ingrained, it knocks confidence, and it really is going to be very sluggish ahead. So what can the government actually do, Niraj, uh, to help with this situation? You know, when we talk about the housing market, we usually talk about how the government should build more homes. But in this situation, policy-wise, what would be ideal? I don't think there's an ideal solution for the short term. Certainly, I mean, building more homes, that's a long-term thing. That should have been, you know, more investment and so on. Um, You know, there have been short-term tricks which have actually distorted prices like stamp duty cuts and so on. But that always distorts the market and causes problems further ahead. Um, for an election coming up, you would, might want to help first-time buyers, particularly with a new help-to-buy scheme. But again, there, there are issues with problems with this and affordability-wise as well. How much can the government pump in, into this and how much will it distort the market in the long run? The go- yeah, the government's, the government's tied a little bit in this situation. Lucy, I wanted to go back to you and, and, and try and give us some sort of sense of, of optimism. Is there anything that we could be looking out for coming up that might be some good economic news for the government? Well, in a way, there is uh, possibly something to look forward to in that um, we've got wage data coming out uh, in just over a week, I think. Um, and we are starting to see real wages uh, grow again, which is good. You know, mm. obviously, uh, we're seeing inflation fall back and wages are still rising. So Britons are once again finally starting to get richer. Obviously, that's not quite such good news for the Bank of England as the Bank of England tries to tame inflation um, because it means people have more to spend, which could essentially push up inflation. Um, so, what's good for households on the one hand might actually be a sort of double edged sword. <laughs> Neeraj, back to you. Can you put this in context for us? Lucy's talking about the wage data that's coming up. We're going to get another CPI reading as well, or inflation reading, I should say. My own uh, jargon klaxon going off there. Um, let's talk to... Thanks, Liz. Um, what, looking ahead to the next Bank of England meeting, when we think about where interest rates will go from here, this is central to this story as well. What, what is the path ahead for, for the Bank of England? Bloomberg Economics are expecting another rate hike as a done deal in September. So that will a 25 basis hike to 5.5. And we're actually expecting another hike in November. So we're actually expecting rates to peak at 5.75%. And again, I think they're going to more focus on core inflation and the wage growth. And you're just not going to see the data fall before then and the messaging. So I think I'm afraid we're going to likely see two more hikes. All right. Thanks for the analysis to uh, Niraj Shah from Bloomberg Economics and our economics reporter, Lucy White. Now, Stephen, we were talking about the future path for rates from the Bank of England. The chief economist of the Bank of England, Hugh Pill, had some colourful remarks about this on his trip to South Africa recently. He compared the path for rates to Table Mountain, which is something that we've talked about on this podcast before, may I add. We love a new metaphor. Yes, Charlie Bean, the former Bank of England policymaker, did tell us that it would look like Table Mountain. This is what Hugh Pill was talking about, that you'd get a, a, a flat top 
you'd get a steady increase and then rates would stay high. Lizzie is miming this out, by the way. I am. I don't know why. I don't know why I bother. But it stay, they stay high for a while and then they come down rather than a Matterhorn model or, as Charlie Bean put it, an Everest model where they go screeching up and then screeching down. But for the average consumer, for the average voter, surely the Table Mountain model is better because you can plan for it. You can ask for that pay rise and deal with it. But I did have to wonder, Stephen, whether Cupill uh, might take the cable car option well, down. Let's, let's take a listen to the man himself making this analogy for us. <laughs> you know, there may be multiple paths that get you to where you want to be. Some of them have a more rise rapidly and then fall rapidly. What we sometimes call the Matterhorn profile of interest rates on the left-hand side. Um, but an alternative one would be to hold restriction in policy for longer, but in a more steady and what Raphael described as resolute way, with a profile for interest rates that looks a little bit more like Table Mountain. And I think there are, that is a big part of where the debate about monetary policy is today. And I think consistently with remarks Raphael made, I think I would tend to favor the latter. I think it probably imposes fewer risks to financial stability. I think it's more of a response to trying to squeeze inflation out of the wage, price, and cost-setting system. Um, and, and crucially, I think, in the UK, it's more effective at ensuring that we see transmission through the sort of two- to five-year maturity rates that have become very central to the way the mortgage market uh, and private borrowing uh, operates. That was the Bank of England's chief economist speaking at a conference in South Africa, which also explains why he decided to make Table Mountain his metaphor for describing interest rates. But I'm certainly pleased to have a new uh, linguistic crutch to fall back on for our endless conversations about where interest rates go next. Interesting to hear the latest comments that we've had from Hugh Pill uh, talking about the UK yet to see a downturn in core inflation. That's when you uh, strip out some of the more volatile elephant elements of volatile elephants. elephants. <laughs> the elephants are coming. The volatile elephants of price uh, inflation as well, which is sort of a very key metric that the Bank of England watches as well. Lots of conversations being had on foreign shores about the UK economy. Um, we were listening to our colleague on Bloomberg Television earlier, Francine Lacqua is at the Ambrosetti Forum in Italy and, and she's been talking to some of the, the leading lights of uh, economists as well about their take on where the UK economy is. Yeah, on the shores of Lake Como. Windy, it looked well lovely. Some. But yeah, she was speaking to the Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stiglitz and he actually said that the Bank of England's got it harder than anyone else because of Brexit. But interestingly, if you look at Rishi Sunak's five priorities, he said that growth is more important than inflation for the UK because inflation, he says, is going to come down in the UK anyway when it comes down in the Eurozone and the US. Uh, so we'll just get a transfer effect. Francine was also speaking to the renowned economist Nouriel Roubini. He says that the UK, of all the major economies, is the most likely case of stagflation. It could be the perfect storm, were the words he used. And a question that we've asked repeatedly on this podcast um, is whether the government, given it's its top priority to halve inflation, should be using fiscal policy to to control it rather than leaving the whole task to the Bank of England. Well, actually, Rubini made an important point. He said, you're trying to grow the economy, so you don't want to uh, retrench the economy by using fiscal policy. And then he said that he was actually quite hopeful on the Labour Party's stance on Brexit, mm. uh, which, you know, as Stiglitz said, is contributing to inflation. Uh, but 
he said, Rubini, that Labour wouldn't reverse Brexit, but maybe it would do something on the customs union. Yeah, and perhaps some hope of uh, easier relations, particularly with the uh, arrival of extra checks uh, on the way as well uh, for our own uh, klaxon purposes, uh, stagflation is when you have inflation with high unemployment and stagnant demand of the economy as well. So that's kind of the other uh, elements. I'm, I don't know, am I overdoing this? Probably. But anyway, <laughs> we'll move on. My foghorn has broken. <laughs> Do you like Jay-Z, Stephen? Yeah, this, I feel like there's a load of question. I'm not there's, a huge fan. Do you know that song Otis, where Jay-Z's like, I've got five passports, I'm never going to jail. I've just rapped on the podcast. <laughs> I knew it was Friday. It's a silly season. Yeah. Well, okay. Let me bring it back to the news. The number of people living in England and Wales with dual nationality has grown dramatically in recent years. And this is as British citizens, particularly young people, have been getting a second passport after Brexit. And our reporters, Alex Mortimer and Maddie Parker, have been looking into the story. They join us in the studio now. Maddie, what's going on here? How did you find out this story? What are the numbers saying? So, yeah, it's really interesting. We got a new ONS data yesterday. Um, It's from the census data from 2021. Um, And there are a couple really interesting trends. As you say, um, the number of people with dual citizenship in the UK has grown dramatically, Um, particularly over the past decade, it has doubled. So in 2011, the number of people in England and Wales who had two passports was around 600,000. And that has grown by 2021 to 1.2 million. So it's a pretty, pretty big increase. Um, the same thing for those uh, number of people born outside of the UK, but with UK and EU citizenship has grown fivefold. So that's now at about 150,000. Um, so there's definitely this growing trend, a very upward trajectory of people seeking out second passports uh, and all the benefits that they might bring. Yeah, and Alex, do we know what's behind the trend? I mean, is it, is it as simple as just saying Brexit? Well, I mean, obviously, as Maddie was saying, it's this is 2021 census data that was released to us yesterday on Thursday. Um, and obviously, our main point of comparison is 2011, the last census. Um, and it is obviously very hard to ignore that slap bang in the middle of that decade, we had a Brexit referendum and um, a protracted period either side of that of, uh, let's not, maybe not say panic, but um, definitely uncertainty. heightened. Uncertainty. <laughs> uncertainty, that's the one. Um, and, you know, obviously, that's about working different countries, traveling to different countries, even, you know, concerns about um, about going on holiday to different countries. And, you know, it's very hard to say that that's not played a, a major role here. Um, people jumping on that opportunity to pick up a second passport where they are eligible to. Um, there is another um, kind of factor at play here, which is we're still seeing large inflows into the UK. We're still, you know, seeing net migra- uh, immigration, mm. even from the EU. And um, actually, one of the things that we kind of um, picked up on on this data is that we're seeing lots of people move to the UK, have children, then it's their children who are kind of getting second passports at a high rate now at the moment. So I'd say those two are the, probably the major driving factors. OK, so it's not people trying to flee. I have to confess, I had three days off in August and I was forced by my husband to spend one of them in the Philippine embassy, renewing my Philippine passport so that sound advice. <laughs> if I have children one day, that they can escape if we're underwater. But I did think that we're probably less likely to be underwater than the Filipinos. That aside, (laughs) Matty, how does all this data break down by country? Is there a particular uh, one that's top of the list when it comes to dual nationality? Yes, so definitely. So among the EU countries, um, in the top five, we have things like Irish, French, Polish, German nationality. Um, I think Irish is one that's particularly interesting. Um, There's been a surge in interest in getting an Irish passport, um, obviously because the Republic of Ireland is still in the EU, whereas the UK have voted to leave. Um, So lots of people have 
try to and we're great obviously and you're great <laughs> so that helps um, there should be a sound effect for that as well <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah that's the thing and people are the eligibility for an Irish passport is fairly straightforward in the sense that you need to have at least one grandparent who's born there or either your parents are Irish citizens when you were born um, and that would give you the benefits of freedom to live and work across the EU bloc so that's very helpful um, and then outside of the UK we've got a lot of countries that are English speaking or uh, affiliated with the Commonwealth so we have like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Nigeria um, so yeah all of those are, are countries that are kind of leading the way in this in this search. It's really interesting, actually, when you look at the statistics of the number of people who've gotten Irish passports since Brexit. So, I mean, there the figures from that census, so 160,000 people living in the UK hold both Irish and British passports. Now, it, there's a slight distortion in some of these figures as well, because if you're born in Northern Ireland, you're entitled to have both passports. And the latest figures they're from the middle of last year, so they're a little bit out of date, show that around uh, 35% of people living in Northern Ireland have um, an Irish passport. Uh, but in the meantime, because of this, partly partly down to Brexit as well, there's been an absolutely massive surge in the number of people applying for Irish passports every year, so much so that the passport service has had to actually up its staffing to be able wow. to deal with it. If you think about it, Ireland's population only surpassed 5 million last year, and the last year there were 1.1 million passport applications processed mm-hmm. by the passport service. And it, Ireland is a bit of an outlier in this because there is a high proportion of Irish citizens who live outside of the country. The last estimates put it around one and a half million um, from the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs. But the the increase has been notable, <coughs> excuse me, in the number of people living uh, in Britain who've applied for Irish passports. Uh, partly, of course, it's been such a long tradition of immigration, which means that the number of people who have a grandparent and are thus eligible uh, is, is quite large in this country too. And um, in this context, is this a large portion of the population that have dual nationality? Yes, yeah, so it's, well, the number is actually about 2.1%. Um, and we spoke to a professor from King's College on who said, actually, that sounds quite small, considering... Is that my friend Jonathan Porter? By yeah. The chance? It is. He's always yeah. giving me economics lessons. Oh, he's very, very helpful. So, like, yeah, it sounds um, actually like a surprisingly small figure, considering, you know, the long history of immigration to the UK. Um, but it's actually, th- that number doesn't really represent necessarily everyone who's immigrated from certain countries. So, for example, if you've come to the UK from India, India is one of the countries a handful of them who don't allow dual citizenship so if you come to the UK from India and you seek out a British passport as soon as you get a British passport you have to automatically surrender your Mm. Indian one Um, and for many many years the uh, Indian population is the largest foreign born uh, population in the UK Um, and the same thing actually goes for China as well so if you come to the UK from China you also won't be able to claim dual citizenship so um, although the number sounds quite small uh, it's not the you know the bigger picture but it's definitely on on this upwards trajectory. Alex, so one of the other interesting details in this as well is the age of people that are getting dual citizenship. What, what's in the figures that stood out for you? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, as I was saying, um, there's a big uptake in kind of second generation immigrants. So people whose parents have, you know, moved here and they've been born in the UK um, and currently resident in England and Wales. Um, and, you know, they've got strong ties to another com- uh, country, obviously, you know, really jumping on the opportunity to... Um, get pick up a second passport so yeah as you say some of the figures are quite striking um the median age of someone born in the uk uh living in england or wales at the moment but with um both the uk and a polish passport for instance is seven years old wow um that's closely followed by france and germany where it's 15 and italy where it's 20 so it is very much you know young people leading that particular aspect of the trend um and i think you know there's there's some interesting implications of that for the future so Obviously, one of the big benefits of dual citizenship is you can very easily go and work in another country. You don't need a visa, you don't need work permit or, you know, kind of that faff. Um, <laughs> it's for want of a better word. Um, Fair. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And uh, so obviously there's a question of are we going to see people kind of moving away from the UK um, back to home countries if the job market is more favourable, if there's more, you know, kind of uh, enticing opportunities. Um, and the second thing that I'd lastly highlight is, um, you know, obviously the young, younger demographic voted overwhelmingly to remain in the EU. And if it's young people who really feel that they're you know, being pushed to go and get a second passport, um, you know, what does that say about the potential for another Brexit referendum at some point in the future when, you know, in some cases these people become come of voting age in the UK? It's a really interesting point. I also wonder whether it's about tax, because of course we've got the highest ta- uh, tax burden in the post-war period in the UK, maybe mm. more favourable elsewhere. Well, perhaps, yeah, I mean, you, you, I think it could be a difficult battle if you go to some of the continental European country, countries, certainly, where personal taxation uh, can be much higher. Um, but certainly, of course, that depends on how much you're earning as well. Uh, fascinating story. Thanks so much to Maddie Parker and to Alex Mortimer for bringing us the details of that story around dual citizenship in the UK. Lizzie, it's Friday, as we've signalled several times now, but we are looking ahead to a very busy political week. Next week, of course, Parliament resumes as well after the summer recess. Um, lots to talk, too, about the summer holidays that various politicians have been on, too. Yeah, Rishi Sunak in California. Who'd have mm. thought it? Back to his spiritual home? Uh, yes, taking his daughter to Disneyland. Why not? Uh, Keir Starmer in Swansea in Wales. I'm sure equally as glamorous. Mm, and um, uh, the, Bal- the Prime Minister and his wife are going to be at Balmoral with the King, uh, as was traditional with the Queen. So I can see the future episodes of The Crown writing themselves. <laughs> Indeed. Of course, we will be bringing you Prime Minister's questions on the programme next Wednesday as well. That'll be the first one of the new session as well. We'll also be watching out to see if we get any more details of the timing of the by-election for Nadine Dari's seat after after she formally resigned from Parliament last week, there is some questions over whether or not it could be called even around the period of Tory party conference. That's one to watch for next week as well. That is it from us for today, though. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Jack Ryan and James Woolcock and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more on Monday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.